So I'd like to <clears throat> begin to open up a little more the exploration of the question of where Eros uh, is directed to in our lives and on the path, the whole exploration of Eros on the path, Eros for the path, and Eros for awakening, soul-making on the path, soul-making in the path, the path as a path of soul-making, to what extent and how, uh, etc. So where does the Eros, where does the soul-making get to go in our lives? What are the possibilities there and the limitations that we might uh, inadvertently create and sustain. So there's quite a lot to this, so we'll, we'll, we'll take it gradually. Um, in the Pali Canon, uh, the Buddha very uh, clearly and very often um, puts forward as the aim of the path and intrinsically involved and wrapped up in the aim of awakening and enlightenment um, a the ideal, the sort of goal of knowing, reaching, experiencing uh, the unfabricated, um, what is beyond the uh, perception of any kind of world. And so in that sense there's a real transcendent or transcendental thrust to the Pali Canon Buddhist teachings. Uh, transcendent is you know, trans scendere in, in Latin, it means to, to, to climb beyond, something like that. <coughs> um, and so this is, to, to, you know, really if we open the Pali Canon, this is kind of unavoidable to meet this uh, constant pointing towards that, as if the whole path is really aimed at that. There is this transcendent thrust, transcendent aim, or aim of transcendence. And so I could read many, many quotes of the uh, passages from the Pali Canon that refer to this, um, for instance... Some of you will know these quotes, uh, which to me are, are quite an important aspect of the path, but we'll touch on this. Uh, we'll fill it out more. So, uh, for example, in the Samyutta Nikaya, <coughs> uh, the Buddha says, that sphere, or that dimension, we could say, Ayatna, uh, that sphere should be understood, Vedithabhe um, is also, uh, should be known, that sphere should be understood or known where the eye ceases and perception of forms fades away. That sphere, that dimension should be understood and known where the ear ceases and the perception of sounds fade away. That sphere should be understood, should be known where the nose ceases and the perception of smells, where the tongue ceases and the perception of taste, where the body ceases and the perception of tactile objects fades away. That sphere, that dimension should be understood, should be known where the mind ceases and perception of mental phenomena fades away. Um, so, great stress on this. Uh, it's a beyond 
any sense experience whatsoever. Sense experience here is a fading, is not fabricated at that time. There is a, uh, a movement beyond, a transcending of sense experience, the whole world, in other words. Um, not just the creation of stories and complications based on sense experience, but actual sense experience is transcended. And this the Buddha calls the end of the world, um, in a sort of uh, slightly playful uh, moment in another quote. He says, I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. Yet I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to dukkha. Uh, it's also from the Samyutta Nikaya. So again, this transcending of the senses, this going beyond the world, the fading of the world, the fading of the senses, and the opening to whatever we can uh, uh, call that which is beyond, that which transcends it, this is central to um, the Buddha's project of awakening and ending dukkha. Without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to dukkha. And he's not talking about traveling, uh, etc. Very clear. Um, so we can continue uh, just just to stress, if you like, how central this is in Pali Canon, in the Pali Canon sort of um, uh, set of teachings and, and, and the, uh, what's laid out there. So, uh, in the Majjhimanikaya, middle-length discourses, the Buddha says, there is the inferior, there is the superior, and beyond, there is the giving up of this entire field of perception. There is the inferior, meaning ordinary uh, perception of the ordinary world. There is the superior, the perception of, if you like, higher worlds, the perception of um, the what, what the Buddha called the fine material uh, realm of the realm of jhanas and the uh, immaterial realms, the realm of the formless jhanas, the four higher jhanas, uh, and the uh, Brahma realms and th- these kind of things that maybe attain through different meditations. There is the inferior, there is the superior, and beyond beyond both of these, there is the giving up of this entire field of perception, the entire field of experience of things, objects. Uh, etc. And again, tying it in to the end of suffering is not just like, oh, well, that's an interesting kind of experience that one can have if you want. Sometimes uh, ties this in uh, with the end of suffering. So it says, when Nama Rupa, which really means um, the the whole movement and experience of mind and body, but more in more detail, it means attention. Um, Sensation, Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, intention, contact, perception, experience in short. Where Nama Rupa experience together with impingement and the perception of form cease without trace. It is there that the tangle is cut. Okay, so Nama Rupa ceasing also means Vedana, sensation is, ce- is ceasing. There is the end in that experience. There is the end of of sensation, of Vedana. doesn't just mean the end of unpleasant Vedana or the end of pleasant Vedana to some kind of neutrality. Everything's just kind of blank. um, uh, Blank in the sense of being neutral or not registering a Vedana. 
it, it means beyond even neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sensation is, is in a way, a more accurate uh, translation for Vedana, is beyond sensation. And uh, if we continue, the Buddha says, this is a, quite a famous quote from a collection <coughs> called the Udana, the inspired utterances, again from the Pali Canon. He's talking to a group of monks, and he says, there is, monks, an unborn, an unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, no leaving behind of the born, become, made, fabricated would be discerned. But because there is indeed an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, a leaving behind of the born, become, made, fabricated is discerned. A leaving behind, a transcending of what is born, what is become, what is made, what is fabricated. All this world of creation, all this world of sense experience uh, is left left behind. There is that possibility. There is a possibility of tran- transcending that. And and again, the, the the text around that is is implicitly pointing to this. This is this is uh, um, intrinsically wrapped up. Knowing this, this leaving behind is intrinsically wrapped up in what it means to awaken, what it means to be free, what it means to um, end rebirth, essentially in full awakening. It's wrapped up in that. Uh, and we could continue and. Uh, also, from a different different text in the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, the Buddha says, so this is, you know, again, he's pointing, we need, to, he's saying, there is something that we can know beyond the senses, beyond the body, beyond sensation, beyond perception and experience, beyond all the movements of the mind, beyond, con- beyond consciousness, really. And so he, should, he says, uh, again, as an instruction, you should smash destroy and demolish form. You should smash, destroy and demolish Vedana, sensation. Smash, destroy and demolish perception. Smash, destroy and demolish Sankara, mental formations. Uh, You should smash, destroy and demolish consciousness. It's not often you hear um, that quote in uh, in uh, kind of modern Dharma teachings, very strong uh, language. He's pointing. What's he pointing? He's pointing to a meditative technique. In other words, you should learn to unfabricate um, this whole world of apparent forms, apparent body, apparent uh, sensations, perceptions, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. Smash it. Destroy it. Demolish it. So. What is the Buddha saying in relationship to life? Because life, what is life, as we consider it, without sense perception and the five aggregates as in form, Vedana, perception, Sankara, consciousness? So what is the, the Pali Canon Buddha, what is his orientation? Uh, how is he orienting the path and the goal of awakening in relation to life? What is the place of life? In, in in the longing for awakening. How does life and the end of rebirth, how does life and the vision, uh, the experience, the transcendent, what, what's, what's the relationship there? Um, so, it 
should be clear also by all this that the Buddha is not just talking about a state of concentration, as I said. It's not just that this experience of the transcendent is just some ultra, super-duper concentrated state where you, there's no impingement of the senses because you're so glued to whatever your object is, the tip of your nose or something. All these quotes make it make it very. All these passages make it very clear. No, there's something about this, as I said, that's intrinsically um, wrapped up in the whole uh, uh, m- moment of of liberation, if you like, or moments of liberation, and the whole liberating process, the ending of rebirth, and what awakening means. Awakening to what? Now, uh, could actually just give a few more to round off these, these passages, selection of passages. Um, the Buddha, uh, in another passage, refers to this transcendent or unfabricated. Mostly, he refers to it in negative terms because it's so transcendent to what we can usually. Um, what we perceive, our experience, if it's transcendent to the senses, transcendent to the aggregates, all that, it's also transcendent to what we can usually conceive, therefore, because conception is based on subject, object, time, experience, and all that. So usually he talks about it in the negative. It's not this, it's not that, there's no this, there's no that there, etc. Very occasionally he talks about it in a, in a positive. So there's one passage in uh, Diganikaya, the uh, longer a uh, set of longer discourses, and he um, talks about going beyond the senses, or the six senses of uh, ceasing. Uh, the sixth sense in, in uh, Pali Canon Buddhism is uh, the mind, and the other usual five senses that we're familiar with. And going beyond those six senses, or those six senses ceasing, not being fabricated, and opening to... Um, what remains then with with that cessation uh, of the six senses and the six sense consciousnesses? Uh, what remains is, in more positive terms, consciousness without attribute. Vijnanam um, anidasanam. You can also translate that as something like consciousness that does not look at anything or point anything out. Um, or indicate anything. In other words, a consciousness without an object. Um, consciousness without attributes, another way of translating, without end, luminous all around. Here, water, earth, fire and air have no footing. Here, long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant, and nama rupa, all that experience of mind and body, and the movements of mind and body, the elements of mind and body, all are destroyed with the cessation of consciousness, meaning the sixth sense consciousness. Here, each of these is destroyed, all of that. Earth, air, water, fire, long and short, subtle and gross, any kind of distinction, any kind of experience, pleasant and unpleasant, nama rupa, all destroyed. Um, but it's not, an, it's not a complete nothing. So this is not annihilation, this is not um, total erasure. Okay. <clears throat> um, and uh, lastly, again, it's, it's uh, one more quote from um, the Udana, Udana again, is uh, the inspired utterances is also in thinking that Ithiwataka, um, 
another set of discourses from the Pali Canon, and the Buddha says, there is that sphere, there is that dimension where there is neither earth nor water nor fire nor wind, neither sphere of infinite space, space nor sphere of infinite consciousness, nor sphere of nothingness, nor sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Those are the four um, immaterial jhanas, realms. Neither this world nor the next world, neither sun nor moon. And there, I say, there is no coming and no going, no staying, no passing away, and no arising. It is without foundation, non-continuing, and objectless. So something quite beyond the jhanas, quite beyond any sense of materiality, or perception of this or that or anything quite beyond um, e- either per- impermanence or permanence. It's beyond time. No coming and going, no staying, no passing away, no arising, non-continuing. Um, this is really talking about something utterly transcendent there um, and not just a state of, of concentration. Uh, clearly, um, Clearly, these uh, passages are not pointing to um, a state of, quote, being in the moment. It's beyond a sense of the moment, uh, beyond a sense of uh, being even with the arising and passing away of things, beyond a sense of being with uh, or reduced to or just open to the process of life or the flow of life, if you if you prefer a slightly more poetic language. Um, clearly it's way beyond that. It's not continuing, no arising, no passing away. Utterly beyond the senses. Utterly beyond any anything whatsoever. You can't talk about a process or a flow. Flow of what there? Um, utterly beyond, again, a sort of um, state or stance or ongoing experience of um, the touch of life or of meeting life and, and certainly beyond anything uh, that could be construed as being with things as they are. Um, utterly really transcendent. Instead, it's like reading the, the Pali Can, you know, um, for me it's like it's unavoidable these kind of passages and and, and the, how everything kind of funnels towards that the whole path is constructed towards this understanding as central in the opening of liberation um, so you can try and explain it away or try and de-emphasize that but you got quite a job there um, in, in terms of uh, if, if you try and it's if you try and do that, it's not something you can really ignore. You, you are confronted with these uh, many, many passages and the whole kind of how everything kind of moves towards that, as I said. Um, so some, something, as I said um, in one of the talks, somehow we need to account for this uh, unfabricated and the Buddha's emphasis on it and also our experiential experience of unfabricating and the whole understanding of dependent origination there and emptiness that we talked about much earlier. But in a way, the Buddha is mostly saying uh, in another passage, we're all phenomena cease in this, uh, in this transcending. We're all phenomena cease, all, all manner of speaking, all ways of speaking cease. It's only possible to talk in negatives. It's not this, it's not that. There's the absence of this, there's the absence of that. This is not there, that is not there. And there's a sort of um, uh, what's called apophatic language, um, or kind of 
apophatic theology is an equivalent in, in the Christian and other um, theistic traditions, um, or the via, the via, via negativa. Um, so there's not only that this transcendent lacks any attributes that we can talk about, it's actually that the way to it is, is a, a via negativa, a, a negative way, meaning a, a putting aside of this, putting aside of that, letting go of this, letting go of that, and going beyond this, going beyond that, going beyond any, uh, any sense perception, any form, anything, any, um, anything conditioned or created. So any um, experience in the, in the normal sense of the world, of some kind of thing experienced. Um, one goes beyond that, one puts it aside, and one comes to something that is also negativa in the sense of uh, uh, lacking in attributes that one can um, <coughs> ascribe to it. Uh, you know, and this is... Um, this this kind of thrust is common, um, I think, probably in all the major um, religious traditions, spiritual, mystical traditions. Certainly, because we're really in the realm of mystical experience now. Excuse me. Um, so certainly, um, in um, in Buddha Dharma. Uh, or rather in some Buddha Dharma, let's say, um, and certainly there in the Pali Canon, in Neoplatonism, in um, mystical Christianity, Islam, and um, Judaism, etc., etc. Um, and from, from many of those, or, or within strands of many of those traditions, it's absolutely intimately linked, um, if not equivalent, with the supreme goal of the path. So knowing that, opening to that, experience that is... Um, is entirely conflated with um, uh, the the supreme goal of of that whichever mystical religious tradition we're talking about. And so again, in in relationship to the world, and in relationship to what we, you know, must call life, um, there is this. Um, longing and this aiming for and this pointing out of the availability of something beyond all this, beyond the world and beyond life, beyond sense experience, beyond um, uh, the aggregates that make up life and our experience of life, self and life. So Gregory of Nyssa, the um, great uh, one of the saints of the Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian tradition, um, says, you know, for the thirst of human souls, the thirst of human souls requires some infinite water. How could this limited world suffice? So there is, in these different traditions, and in the Pali Canon uh, Buddha, uh, there is, we could say, there's this yearning, there's this longing, and as I point out, the Buddha was, extreme in his dedication for uh, wanting to um, go beyond and open to this. Um, there is this yearning, this longing, this desire, this eros for this transcendent. Um, this exists, this eros, this yearning exists and it exists very, very strongly in some people. Um, and some people a little bit less so, and some people it doesn't seem to exist uh, much at all. In fact, there might be uh, a, a, a turning away from that, a rejection of that possibility, 
um, fear of it, all, all kinds of things, we'll, we'll come back to this. But one possible direction of our eros and, and our, our whole uh, movement and longing of the soul is towards this transcendent, towards knowing it, um, towards opening to it, etc., to something we we want something that in Gregory's words this this limited world doesn't suffice we'll come back to that quote because as, as uh, I want to um, kind of look at the different possible directions for eros and soul making so we'll revisit that quote but one possible direction is towards this transcendent the eros the thrust of the eros and the yearning to open again if we use uh, sexual uh, sort of metaphorical language is towards this or in relationship to this transcendence that transcendent I don't know yet for some people and to differing extents Um, and and as it is it's transcendent uh, clearly from those quotes and one could read lots of quotes from yet different other traditions Neoplatonism and the different mystical traditions of um, monotheism etc monotheistic traditions Uh, but it's beyond beyond what beyond the world beyond appearances um, beyond even certain certain knowings of of a oneness as I said beyond oneness of love beyond a oneness of consciousness etc it's beyond transcending it climbs over transcendere Um, so the pothos Remember, the pothos is what wants more with the eros. The pothos wants this more, and it's kind of set this really transcendent more, this really um, profound, if you like, or very high, depending up or down, um, in the analogy. It, 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 the pothos um, projects it there, and or or um, if you like. Uh, smells it there, intuits it there, ha- has heard of it there, and and that's where the more, the pothos, that's where the that's the that's where the more gets um placed, the sense of the more, and that's where the eros gets directed. So there's not the spread of the eros in the in the small sense in one dimensionality. Yes, the pothos wants more and so I just get more cars, more um sexual partners, more tasty, you know, um, food and different cuisines of different countries, more traveling, more whatever it is. Um, it's not spreading on one in, into one dimension. There's actually another dimension or other dimensions because usually this unfabricated is kind of um, mapped uh, and not just conceptually but experientially at the sort of end of um, a series of dimensions. So in a way you could conceive of the jhanas, the eight jhanas that the Buddha of the Pali Canon points to, as as, it's, um, as I've said before, I think, uh, on this retreat, um, progressively states of progressively less fabrication. They're, they're kind of, each of them is a dimension. So the realm of infinite space, we could say the dimension, same word, ayatna, sphere of infinite space, of infinite consciousness. These are different dimensions or realms of being, realms of experience, realms of perception, dimensions. And transcending the eighth, um, the next dimension, if you like, is is this uh, unfabricated? Sometimes actually referred to as nibbana. Um, so, but the pothos is moving 
through in, into other dimensions and has um, as its ultimate aim this, uh, or what it believes is its ultimate aim, which is something I'll come back to, this, this ultimate dimension of the transcendent unfabricated. Um, nor does the, um, the eros just accept one dimensionality. Um, so it doesn't, uh, in, or rather, it doesn't just accept that there is only one dimension. And although I have this desire for some other dimensions, um, what I really need to do to be free of suffering is just accept the experience on this one dimension. In other words, what the senses give to me, the apparent or seemingly obvious finitude of my life, the difficulties that I encounter, uh, all, all of that, and my job to be liberated, what I'm moving towards is a stance, uh, hopefully an ongoing stance of just accepting, not craving in relationship to this one dimension, because there are no other dimensions, so don't look for anything there. And rather than spreading out to just want more and more on this one dimension, more cars, more partners, whatever it is, more experiences, um, I, I, the liberation is in the just accepting and kind of containing or cutting off the movement of the pothos, the movement of the eros of the more. Uh, and so being accepting just what is given to me in this one dimension. So what is the relationship, as I said, with eros and uh, life, if you like? How is eros directing itself in relationship to life and the world. Uh, so the holy life, some of you will know, is again, is something that the Buddha uh, uh, talks about a lot and refers to a lot in the Pali Canon text. Um, and so it's a, it's a very common uh, phrase, the holy life. And there's, there's sort of stock phrases in, in relationship to it. And so he might say, um, or there might be a story, this, this person or that person, uh, man or woman, received the going forth into the homeless life, so became a monastic. Actually, they were, they were more homeless then because they didn't stay in one monastery. They tended to move around and then just spend the, the rains in, perhaps in one monastery or short periods in staying in this monastery or that monastery, but generally speaking, uh, they were on the move. They were they were much more homeless <coughs> than um, most monastics are today. But so and so received the going forth into the homeless life, and then a little later, or a long time later, uh, this so and so she reached the supreme goal of the holy life. So the homeless life and the holy life, um, uh, the holy life. If it's a Buddhist homeless life. Sorry, the holy life is the homeless life if it's a Buddhist homeless life, in other words, with the Eightfold Path and all that, um, that version of uh, monasticism uh, is regarded as the holy life. So that's the holy life. In other words, you can be homeless in another tradition um, that doesn't have the Eightfold Path, but that's not the holy life. So the holy life is the... Um, tradition of the uh, Buddhist monastic practicing the Eightfold Path. Uh, she reached the supreme goal of the holy life, knowing and realizing it, the supreme goal for herself in the here and now. He knew, she knew, 
And this is the, the person quoting, uh, the person, what they say at liberation. It's a sort of stock phrase when they've become an arahant, fully liberated. He knew, she knew, birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, or the holy life has been led. It's, it's a, I've done it, finished the holy life. Done is what had to be done. There is nothing further for the sake of the world. So there is an arahant, there is nothing further for the sake of the world. The holy life... Um, as is in other words, the the, the path of um, of practice um, in a celibate renunciate monastic tradition is the holy life. Um, so life itself is not holy. Um, it's it, the holy life refers to something very specific that's actually oriented um, towards uh, what is actually the end of rebirth. The, the, if you like, the end of life, um, the ending of future lives. So it's not life uh, either as a kind of, um, uh, you know, wonderment of biological evolution and diversity. It's not life as in just this amazing, uh, changing kaleidoscope of experiences. Um, that That's not wholly... Uh, what's holy um, is getting beyond all that. And nor is the holy life really just living the ethical life. So it's not a holy life if it's just ethical. Um, uh, ethics, the, the sila, um, and a celibate life in this case are you know, um, indispensable. They're also admirable and praiseworthy, but they're not the point or the end. An ethical life is not the point or the end of the path. It's actually just a prerequisite, a necessity, again, for ending rebirth. It's part of the path if you really want to become awakened. And and that's what makes it holy, the end. Um, when the Mahayana came, this this uh, began to shift a little bit. And now there's kind of, if you like, a, a sort of more popular versions of the Mahayana um, that, are, that are sort of, how people think about it, and there's a shift. Um, so the bodhisattva ideal uh, became quite prominent as a sort of someone who's um, fully awakened or almost fully awakened, and who um, makes the choice to stick around. In other words, not to end their rebirths, but to stick around out of compassion, out of love for other beings who are suffering. So uh, the holy life actually is more tied in with, if you like, an ethical. A movement as we would tend to understand it, meaning a movement of love and a commitment of love. This person is sticking around, not ending rebirth. Uh, and, and so there's there's a shift in that with, with the Mahayana and with the sort of populism of Mahayana, the populism, populist understanding of Mahayana, teachings about bodhisattvas. And also in the Mahayana there's much less, there's a kind of non-duality between the unfabricated, this total transcendent, and the world of fabrication, the world of senses. But as I said, in the Pali Canon, uh, it's somehow or other, whatever one d- decides, as I said earlier, that we're going to bring something to our interpretation of the Pali Canon, but whatever one does with that, we unavoidably have to deal with this transcendent thrust that's there. Um, so the Buddha talks about escaping from this world and the jhanas actually, as I said, being progressive states of less fabrication are actually progressive states of escape. 
So Buddha described it, there's the first jhana as an escape, and then the second jhana is a better escape from the world, etc., etc. The eighth jhana is the be- best escape minus the last one, uh, or the, uh, uh, except for the last one. And and then in, in, in talking about Vedana too, the Buddha makes a distinction between worldly Vedya, Vedana and um, uh, non-worldly, I think the word, word he used, a non-worldly pleasantness, for instance, the pleasure of the jhanas. It's not coming from the senses. The rapture, the bliss, the ecstasy of the jhanas is not, it's not coming from sensual touch, taste, smell, sight or sound. And the Buddha also in the Pali Canon talks about the supramundane, uh, beyond the, the world, the loka, um, uh, meaning the transcendent. So there is implicit in all this um, a kind of relative denigration of the world, a denigration of life. Life is only serving, if you like, something that goes beyond life. Life is only kind of good to the extent that we use it to get beyond life. And the world uh, is is not um, it, it is something to be transcended, something to be got beyond. Now, the, the, this is not that popular, uh, or rather, it's not really brought out much in a lot of mod- modern uh, Western teachings, um, and so and sometimes. You know, pe- people really try and make the case that the the Buddha of the Pali Canon absolutely wasn't, uh, didn't have a transcendent thrust, and it's really about being in this life and and being open to everything. Um, I, I find that a little hard to sort of twist things that way um, in in an interpretation of the Pali Canon. But it's interesting. Why? Why? Is there that insistence by some that the Buddha of the Pali Canon did not have a transcendent thrust? Um, that to me is very interesting for different reasons, so we're hopefully going to touch on all this. Now, some some is purely individual, which we'll come back to, to do, if you like, so to speak, with the, with the soul of the person and the soul calling of the person. But a lot of it is also cultural. So in our modernist culture, in, in our modernist society, and what we've been, kind of, the, the views that we've grown up with, um, there's a kind of abhorrence for various reasons for anything that is transcendent in that sense. It's too close, some of it has to do with it being too close to a kind of life denialism. And if life is all you have, which is kind of what modernism, a lot of modernism asserts, if you like, that there's there's just this, and when you die, you die, and that's it. And there's nothing beyond, and there's um, absolutely no place for metaphysics, which is a very confusing well, there's a lot of confusion around what that word means, but there's no place for anything beyond the senses or what you can see through the senses or through a microscope um, and infer from that. So uh, there's a kind of real thrust of that kind of um, uh, ruling out, absolute dogmatic ruling out of metaphysics um, from, from modernist philosophy. Um, and actually most postmodern philosophy, uh, and that has spread into the culture, if you like, so that a cardinal rule is nothing beyond, nothing beyond, there's just this, there's just this, and um, if you like, we have to find uh, what 
we are looking for in in this in just this meaning the experience of the senses meaning what comes to us empirically um, it also means what science kind of tells us or seems to tell us um, <clears throat> that that gets a bit more confusing if you take science a bit deeper um, so it's not that simple because many people nowadays clearly believe although many people just believe this is it and when you die that's it a lot of other people believe I have no idea what the sort of split is a lot of other people clearly believe in some kind of life after death some kind of spiritual world beyond where I'll be with grandma again and my um, uh, spouse or whatever it is um, but but that kind of beyond is is not at all like the un- unfabricated. Um, uh, in other words, it's still a realm of experience. It's pretty much like this one, only it sounds nicer in some way, and it's not uh, kind of very nicely. It's not subject to impermanence, etc. So, uh, and there's a kind of split um, between people who believe that and people who believe there's just extinction. But this whole um, unfabricated, something beyond experience or a series of dimensions that move beyond all sense experience, all all perception, etc. Um, this is too much, I think, I wonder if, if in some respects it's for, for a lot of people too much like uh, an extinction or it, or it just doesn't have an attraction for, for lots of reasons. And so we're squeezed in to, with, the, with that refusal of that transcendence, we're squeezed in to either this hope for something better beyond death, where there's this eternal sort of being with one's loved ones, etc. Um, or, uh, or this, we're squeezed into just this, there's just this, and, and there's just life. Um, and then the version of Dharma that comes out of that squeezing into justice or just life, um, as it seems to be, or perhaps uh, just a little bit atomistically reduced into a kind of, uh, uh, you know, the self isn't real, so what there really is a process, but everything else is, is also just a process of atoms, etc., Somehow, in either version there, which I'll revisit, uh, we're kind of squeezed, one of the options is to be squeezed into a kind of um, existentialist version of Dharma, which is a lot like existentialist philosophy, or informed by existentialist philosophy, or existentialist psychoanalysis. Um, This is it, this is your um, place to somehow... Uh, find, eke out some kind of okayness or freedom or acceptance of this um, undeniable existential situation, that this is it, um, that th- there is this life that's essentially meaningless, it's essentially finite, um, etc. Um, but the question partly here is when there is the rhetoric of justice or life, what, what, what is actually meant? I've talked about this before. When you say this, what do you mean by this? There's just this. What do you mean by life? Especially when you give that word life a capital L. Um, do you mean just the senses? Do you mean um, bare attention? What's revealed by bare attention or something else? Um, or something quite... Uh, sort of incorporating much more than that. So broadly, in this non-transcendent sort of, uh, or this refusal of the transcendent, um, we could kind of 
distinguish two possibilities there. There is what I just alluded to, a kind of um, existentialist uh, path, if you like, um, which is, there is just this one dimension that comes to us in the senses. There's nothing more than that. We refuse anything more than what is obvious to most people in Western culture, uh, to the senses of most people in Western culture. In other words, we're just going along with what most people in our culture of Western uh, scientific materialist modernism can actually perceive through their limited training they've had in in perception. So there's a kind of flatland of one-dimensionality and what freedom is available in relationship to that one-dimensionality, taking it as as, uh, almost as given. As I said, it might be acknowledged that the self doesn't really exist and is more of a process, and uh, and as is as is everything else, a kind of process. Uh, so, what's the possibility for freedom there, and what's the possibility for soul making in such a one-dimensional flatland um, that refuses the any kind of any kind of other dimensionality or transcendence? Um, so. Where would that possibility, uh, that that kind of um, realm of possibility or range of possibility, is it that that's to to work and to accept that that range of possibility, that flatland freedom and that flatland soul-making, whatever freedom, whatever soul-making is available there, is it that that's actually an individual soul-calling? So might there be, for some people, this is where the soul is called, to to see the world that way, not to see it in ways more than that, or beyond that, or um, etc. And um, to, to, to make the soul-making and make the freedom within, within that, um, well, the limitations of that, of that view. Or is it, so is it, is it, if you like, an authentic soul calling, what we could call that? Is it actually um, the limits of uh, the eros psyche logos process for that person that has actually reached its limits and actually is, is a little bit stuck or cramped or confined or uh, that we've talked about before? Or, and, and is that coming from a kind of um, indoctrination, again, from the culture or from um, fear of what, what's, uh, you know, to not go along with mainstream opinion, whether it's academic opinion or cultural opinion or what, in, in one's different communities. So all, all these questions, whether it's individual soul calling, whether it's just the limits of a certain soul, whether it's uh, indoctrination from whatever culture, we could also apply that to the transcendent. Um, view the view of a transcendence which I'm wanting to know and wanting to open to, and I've heard about again. Could be an individual soul calling, could be a, a, some kind of limit operating there, or or could be some kind of just again indoctrination, if you like, or um, being fed by the culture a certain way. So there's this transcendent option for the movement of soul-making near us. There's this kind of um, refusal of the transcendence into a flat land, uh, if you like, what we're calling a one-dimensionality. And then there's a third um, that we might call imminence. And imminence uh, 
is related to uh, etymologically is remaining in. So the here, what I mean by immanence and what it means in, in most religious traditions is the divinity remains in uh, the world, in life, in form, in matter, in the senses. It infuses all this. Um, it's not, at least in the way I would like to use it, it's not um, limited to that. In other words, there might be a beyond. And I know I've been very open with the definition of, of what I even mean by divinity. And that was deliberate. We'll revisit it. But one of the things is, I would say, that divinity, one of the things is that divinity has some kind of beyondness to it. So it's related to dimensionality. So whatever this beyond is, that I have a sense of divinity uh, in, in, you know, with, um, that is uh, both beyond, but also in life, form, world, matter, senses. Okay. Now, in terms of um, individual orientations, reactions, transformations uh, to, uh, in relation to all this, some people will recoil from the transcendent um, thrust and the transcendent kind of teachings. Something in them doesn't uh, it is either not satisfied or is afraid or doesn't like. So it's quite it's interesting, you know, what's going on for someone who doesn't uh, accept that, and and then also maybe doesn't accept either the flatland. So wants uh, or has the intuition of the div- the divinity, um, not just beyond but in and through. Or some people refuse refuse that kind of transcendent beyond, and it's just in somehow. Yet still, I would say it has some kind of sense of beyondness. So we'll, we'll revisit that in terms of beyondness and divinity. But um, in terms of individual reactions, what I really want to say is, and this can change over a person's life and practice, um, is that there's different stances and sort of gut reactions to these three possibilities. Um, so this is what we want. I want to kind of explore a little bit. And uh, we might mention as well that these, uh, you know, you could say these three have um, shadows, or if that's the right word, kind of um, uh, limitations or consequences, weak points or something. So you can see perhaps immediately how it might be possible that someone is wanting to go beyond the world and, if you like, kind of rejecting the world and putting it in this, um, putting their longing, if you like, or their their soul movement towards um, the unfabricated, towards this transcendent. But but it's less a kind of soul movement as uh, more than a soul movement. It's actually this vibhava tanha, this this craving for non-existence. So th- there could be a kind of confusion that actually it's I want to get out of the world. I, 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 I've had enough. I don't want to be reborn. I want this experience that turns everything off and then I want to end it all. Um, you can see how that could be uh, a confused uh, or rather a, a polluted movement within there that's not actually um, what the Buddha was pointing to. And again, there can be, maybe for some people, an aversion or a fear of 
of body, wanting to transcend body and the messiness and the sexuality of body, um, an aversion of fear to soul-making even. So there's a kind of shrinking movement, if you like, or avoiding movement, like hoping for some kind of transcendent that one kind of skips over um, uh, all this uh, earthy, messy, um, confusing, uh, what John Keats called the veil of soul-making, body, um, uh, eros, you know. Um, but it's coming actually out of a movement of avoiding fear contraction of the being. And again, there's a shadow there of possibly not caring for the world. Well, I'm out of here. I'm on my way out. This world is has no value. In if, if you really, in a kind of extremist view towards the transcendent, this world has only a value of um, a stepping stone at best. Um, there's no divinity in the world per se. Um, that's an extremely dualistic, transcendent view. But I I know people who have that view, um, and and Buddhists too, in fact. Um, uh, in the second version, the kind of more one-dimensional existentialist uh, view, um, you know, again we can see limitations, shadows, all, all kinds, but um, there can be just the attachment to a certain limited view of the senses, a certain limited logos, attachment to the flatland view, narrowness of perception, of experiences, of um, ideation even. And again, uh, is is. In a way, it seems like the opposite view, but again, can lead to a lack of care for the world. Because the world, we're just refusing any beyondness, any divinity to the world. So, um, although it's kind of within the humanistic, modernist, humanist, secularist paradigm to um, care for human beings, etc., and care for the planet because... um, because uh, environmental degradation will... um, affect human beings adversely. Um, It's hard to get a really deep care for the world um, if the world is just meaningless matter. Uh, These are possible shadows. Uh, And of course, uh, there may well be a limit to, uh, A, the depth of freedom, but also the range of soul-making there. Why? Because the actual sense of the world is very limited. And in the third possible uh, direction, if you like, or stance or um, inclination, um, you know, the, the, the drawback, if you like, or the, the thing to watch out for there is just that it, it demands a lot from us, that kind of view. I'll go into this more and just say, uh, you know, if we're really going to open to body and soul and sexuality and eros as a field of divinity and the world and all that, it demands a lot of rigor, um, I think, uh, intellectually, ethically, um, practice, uh, in terms of the artistry of practice, uh, a lot of integrity, a lot of clarity, all that. And it's easy to use a certain language and actually not um, really be so scrupulous uh, in those areas, intellectually, ethically, uh, meditatively, etc. So, three kind of directions without, you know, making making too much or too strict 
kind of lines between them. Um, but you can see this reflected in history as well, uh, of these three directions in, in history. So Robert Bella is a kind of um, historian of religion. He's also a sociologist or something, and um, perhaps an anthropologist, I'm not sure, uh, and talks about the history of what he calls world rejection. So this, uh, again, like what's the relationship of the religious movement, if, if you like, in, in how does it hold the world? How does it view the world? How, uh, what's the movement in relation to and with respect to the world? And so he, talks, he, he investigates the history of um, world rejection and uh, he's a big fan of Max Weber, uh, so he um, acknowledges that Max Weber pointed out that the kinds of world rejection that have existed have manifested in different um, world religions over over his, the historical periods. You can't just lump them all together. They're, they're really, you know, there's quite a range there. But having acknowledged that, he, he says that, uh, but for the moment, I want to concentrate on the fact that they were all, historically, they were all, in some sense, rejections. And that world rejection is characteristic of a long and important period of religious history. I want to insist on this fact because I want to contrast it with an equally striking fact, namely the virtual absence of world rejection in what he calls primitive religions, in religions prior to the first millennium B.C., um, uh, is what he means by that, and in the modern world. So in other words, you get historically what he calls primitive religions before the first millennium BC, so that's before the time of the Buddha, uh, that um, that had uh, the ab- an absence, a virtual absence of world rejection. Then you get this sort of middle period where world rejection is really quite um, marked in different ways. And then you get the modern uh, period where, again, there's a virtual absence of world rejection. Primitive religions, he continues, are on the whole oriented to a single cosmos. There is no beyond. They know nothing of a a wholly different world relative to which the actual world is devoid of value. They are concerned with the maintenance of personal, social, and cosmic harmony, etc. Um, But the overriding goal of salvation that dominates the world-rejecting religions is almost absent in primitive religion. In other words, this idea that salvation, freedom, liberation, awakening, nibbana, or something, has something to do with getting beyond the world, that's not there in primitive religion. There's not, there's not this transcendence there. Uh, and then he continues, world rejection is no more characteristic of the modern world than it is of primitive religion. So uh, this is interesting, I think, in terms of just what's, as I said, what's popular in the culture, what we're influenced by, and then and then how we read backwards into the into the Pali Canon, um, uh, etc., and how we orient ourselves in our lives. So um, this is really what I want to um, explore. Uh, in in more detail the the relationships with um, with these directions what I'm calling the transcendent the sort of existentialist flatland that refuses transcendence and if you like the imminence which may include a transcendence but actually insists if you like on a divinity some kind of divinity in um, in the world in life in 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 matter in form and the senses so 
how does soul making uh, work in these um, three directions and inclinations? How, how does the eros work there? Um, where does it go? And as I said at the beginning, what is the movement of eros on the path or for the path and for awakening if they're if the path and awakening are construed differently in these in these ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.